I think one of the things that's happening within our community is that this posture of curiosity that we keep talking about is, is starting to spread. Uh, here at the church, we've been talking about what it means to maintain a spiritual posture of curiousness, of, of sort of being willing to bring our whole selves into a relationship with this God that we may or may not believe in, this God that we may or may not be disappointed in, this God who may or may not have let us down, and um, this God that uh, we feel like we need to know because he knows stuff about us and he loves us and it feels right to talk about him, but it also feels weird to pretend that I'm not carrying all this stuff. The best posture we've come up with, the best word for that is curiosity. Here you can be curious about all those things and more. And I think the important thing within that, though, is to, uh, is to be authentic about it, is to be real, to bring your whole self. And uh, whatever that brings, whatever season that brings, I just want you to know uh, as I dive into today that uh, I think this has been prepared for you. Sitting in your chair, listening online, driving in your car, sitting at home with your family, this, this is for you. And I believe that in this series, there's a talk every once in a while in every series that kind of just, just spreads through and opens up people to, uh, to hear from God like they never have. Not to hear from me, not to, not to engage with uh, whatever I'm saying, but to hear from the one who made them. And be honest about all the stuff you're holding perhaps against him. This is a, this is a, a special space, a sacred space. And so I just want to kind of recognize it. I want to I sort of speak into it and ask that God would do whatever he wants to do. I'm also going to be honest, though. There's, I'm going to bring some energy today because Joe mentioned when he uh, started that, that uh, he's probably more typical when the rain and the storm and the winds come. It's kind of like, oh, like, when's the sun going to get here? Uh, I am not made that way. As a matter of fact, uh, I'm all about the rain. I pray rain every day for the rest of the year over all of us in Jesus' name. I pray rain over all of us in Jesus' name. Oh, yeah. Hey, listen, be curious about that. I'm just saying rain brings life. Sun brings some life too. But that's different theology. Uh, I, preach best in, I preach best in the rain. And so, uh, so uh, today you're going to get what you get. And if you're, if you're against the rain, that's fine too. It's, it's all about the tension, right? We're going to live inside the tension. Uh, I want to make a statement over you that uh, I think we've kind of come to inside our series, uh, The Theory of More. We have this idea that we're talking about that the world, you're born into this world with this idea that you'll never be enough, that you have to acquire, that you have to develop, that you have to attain certain things in order to be satisfied. And I think what that has done is caused us as humans and caused us as people to be uh, living in this constant state of an insatiable desire to have more, that the human desire for more is insatiable is not really a point I'm hearing much argument over. Most of us in the room know it. We want more land, more money, more power, more influence, more sex, more purpose, more everything. And yet, the more we get, the more we want. I heard an illustration a while back that I just couldn't believe, so I did a little bit of research, and it actually got worse that John D. Rockefeller, who was at one time the most wealthy person on earth, he had a net worth of about 1% of the entire U.S. economy because he owned 90% of all the oil and gas industry in his time. When asked how much money is enough, which he was asked many times, he gave multiple answers all kind of lined up in the same direction. When asked how much money is enough, he said his, uh, just a little bit more, just one more dollar, and then lastly, just before he died, more than I presently have. 
More is, is a condition. It's a posture of a heart and of a life. And almost all of us live in a primary desire to attain and get more. Now, you may say, hey, I've wrestled through this before. That's fine. But I guarantee if we sat down within a few minutes, we could identify together areas in your life, maybe, maybe even areas you've never thought about, that you have been filling with stuff that God actually wants to fill with his presence. I don't know what those areas are. I don't know why you're not willing to, to be honest and open up about that. I know I have some that are secretive to me that I, that I fill with my own uh, vague uh, things that I think will cause me to feel more satiated, will cause me to feel more, more. But I know that I have them, and I know that you do too. And I believe that this posture has brought us to a place where many of us as human beings live in a constant crisis of incompleteness. We're constantly looking for things to complete us and make us feel whole, which means what we wake up every morning thinking about and go to bed every night thinking about is how can I get more? I'll put a statement up on the screen. You decide if it's true. We don't have enough to fill the void of not feeling like we are not enough. We just don't have enough. And the end of these stories over and over and over of, of people, famous people, the Rockefellers, people going out and attaining more than anyone else could ever dream of still end with them like him wanting more. And that's because this world's theory of more is terrible and only leads to wasted and withered lives. In Luke chapter 15, Jesus addresses this. He starts off with a story about a lost sheep, something culturally they would understand, about how he would leave the 99 and go after the one. Then he talks about a lost coin and how a woman lost it in her house and tore apart everything in order to find it. And he's kind of setting up this talk for this other story that was going to be pretty controversial at the time, and it's the story of a lost child, of a lost young man. This is how it starts. Luke 15, verse 11. And Jesus said, There was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And so this father divided his property between them, his two sons. And then not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. This passage opened up in a room like this as Jesus talking would have had people gasping with horror. You have a young son coming to his father saying, give me what's mine when you're dead. In other words, I wish you would just die already. Then he even leans into his father's heart and says, not only do I wish you would die, I wish you would give me what I'm going to get when you die so I can get on with the life I want to live that's different than the one you have here for me in community with you. And then Jesus said, and the father said, okay. The father divided his property and gave it to his young son, and the young son looked at everybody in the family, all the people he'd known his whole life, and then he walked away. It says he went to a far away country. That idea of far is this word macros, and it means a great distance, which means most likely he went as far as he could afford to go on what he had been given. And once he was there, he began to live this insatiably consuming lifestyle, bringing in everything he ever desired. He did this for a few years. 
probably thinking that he could maybe start a business or thinking that maybe he could find some investors or maybe thinking that he had enough money to do everything he ever wanted to do and be the more he thought he needed until eventually it ran out. It says in verse 13, and there in his faraway country, it says that he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And as he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything, something happened. No matter how many ways this narrative is told, it always ends the same way. It always ends the same way for us, just like it's always going to end the same way in times like this. Whenever we go and ask for everything we want and go live exactly how we want, doing everything we want, we end up basically binging ourselves into a place where we don't have to feel anything that hurts us. And the entire time we're filling our lives with things that hurt us. We drink too much. We sleep around, we, we judge, we manipulate, we overwork, we underwork, we become lazy, we become frigid, we become people that are living their lives exactly how they thought they'd want to live their lives until one day they find themselves proclaiming like Solomon did that everything is meaningless. Solomon was a man who had a bit more than most of us here. I don't know if you realize this, but Solomon had 4,000 stalls just for his chariots. That's a lot of chariots, folks. It's like somebody having 4,000 cars. He also had horses, and 12,000 of those horses pulled his chariots. He also received every year over 25 tons of gold just as tribute. Just like as hey, we like you. Countries around wanted to be affiliated. And so they gave this gold, and in this custom, they also gave their daughters. And Solomon, wanting to expand the empire, in the name of the Lord, of course, decided to marry all of them. This man had, towards the end of his life, 700 wives and 300 concubines. Like, like you think you have problems in your marriage. Like, you'd have to have a full-time HR person just to manage, like, everyday, everyday husband-wife stuff. Like, can you imagine a thousand people all wanting your attention, all wanting to be part of your story? Can you imagine all of that drama, all of that pressure, all that went to it? He eventually pens something in Ecclesiastes. The version I have says, verse 2 well, verse 1 is the words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Verse 2, vanity of vanity, says the preacher. Vanities of vanities, all is vanity. What does man gain by the toil at which he toils under the sun? He looks back on his life and proclaims these things. A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south and goes around to the north. Around and around goes the wind. And on its circuit, the wind returns. All streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full to the place where the streams flow. There they flow again. All things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. 
The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. You will never, ever quench that thirst that lives within you with anything but Jesus Christ, period. Now, I didn't say you couldn't be curious about other things that might quench that thirst within you. I know people in our church don't like big dogmatic statements like Jesus is the only way, but I'm here to tell you Jesus is the only way. Now, you can be curious about all the other ways, but Jesus actually proclaims himself as living water. I wonder why that is. Could it be because he's proclaiming, hey, I'm the way to your wholeness. I'm the only more that you need. You can collect relationships. You can collect horses. You can collect chariots if that's your thing. But at the end of the day, it's only going to be Jesus and the relationship with him that actually changes your life, your marriage, your story, your business, your family, your reputation for the more. Now, I'm saying be curious. I know I am. But the reality is that this is the proclamation of this book. And this is full of people like you asking questions like you, living lifestyles like you, all coming to the same conclusion that you will, either today or at the very end of your life, as you breathe your last breath, that Jesus is the only more. Now, what we have to do in order to uh, find this is we have to recognize that none of us in this room have a mind that naturally proclaim that. We want ourselves at the center of the story. We want everything to revolve around us, but guess what? It doesn't, because your life is a cacophony of poor choices, as is mine. (laughs) That offended three people on the left just now. (laughs) But don't worry, because Jesus, as the answer, is a symphony of solution. This is why we have to be in a curious place, because you can't move from cacophony to symphony in a snap. You have to do it one instrument at a time, one tuning at a time. You have to move through the orchestra that is your life and is your story and is your trauma and is your damage. So is mine. And you have to pull the broken strings out and put new ones on. It takes time. But the only way to even know that you are in this cacophony in the first place And that the more you've been filling your life with is only damaging you and making you more and more out of tune, by the way. That's why when you talk, people go, "Mm." it's because your stories hurt their ears. As do mine, by the way. I'm no better. I have to change my mind if I want to live my life retuning. And so do you. We have to change the way that it's set and the way that it thinks. And here in this faraway place, Standing next to a pen or maybe inside a pen of pigs, the prodigal does just that. The opening phrase is when he decides that he has to do something about the sounds of his life. Luke 15, 17, it opens with this. But when he came to himself, when he paused and looked and reflected upon the sounds his life made, he said this, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? Then he makes the decision. I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. He sees where he's at in life, and he decides it would be better for me to be in relationship with the one that I left and not even be 
appropriately uh, honored. I, I don't even want to be a son. I don't need to be a daughter of God. I just want to be in a community where people aren't stabbing me in the back and I can lean on someone when I hurt. That's all I want. And he decides to return home. This is the most clear example to me of repentance in Scripture. This prodigal son is a living example of the verse, the well-known verse in Acts chapter 3 that says, Repent, therefore, and turn back. Go home to where you come from. That your sins or your failures, the things in your life that are out of tune, may be blotted out. That times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus. This is profound, profound, profound. I want you to remember in this verse two things. One, this idea that when you repent and turn home, there's times of refreshing, and that once inside the refreshing, there is a sacrifice made through the relationship of Jesus who comes in to lock into you the more you need. Because let's be honest, without Jesus locking into me, I'm just gonna go home, receive love from him, and prodigal back out again. But when I go home, and I receive the Father's love, and he locks Christ into my story, now suddenly wherever I go and however I fall, I've got this presence of God, I've got this community of God, and suddenly I am living a different life and making a different sound than I ever have before. So many people are sad about their lives, but they don't actually come to themselves, change their mindset, and turn back from where they are headed. That's why today is such a special and sacred place. Because some of you aren't actually turned back. You actually showed up at church in the place you've chosen to be. You brought your pig pen with you. Legit. Good for you. Snack on those pig pods while we continue to talk. <laughs> it said he was hoping for the pods the pigs ate, for those of you who didn't catch it. That was a pig snack joke, but it didn't go so well, so we'll just... <laughs> pig snack jokes are really hard. I've tried them before, so they're just... But what we're supposed to do is change our mind, right? We're supposed to change our mind. We're supposed to, as Romans says, not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, by the coming to yourself, so that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. The testing, by the way, was the journey back. How many mind games do you think he played? How many times do you think the prodigal, when he set off to return home, actually turned back the other, day, the other way for like, for like a half a day? If it was a, a, a month-long journey, he went as far as he could afford, how many times do you think he got up in the morning and was like, I can't do this. It'd be better for me to go back with the pigs. And walked a half a mile that way only to know that where he belonged was with his father and accepted however the father would accept him. And so eventually he's tested and he pays a cost and he makes it all the way to the ridge that overlooks his family's valley. And he knows when he comes up over the ridge, he's going to see what he left, what he hurt. And he's going to see the father. The next verse says that that's what happened. He came over the ridge. But while he was still a long way off, remember that, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they begin to celebrate. We preach a lot in church. We preach a lot in church about repentance and about coming back to God and about being honest about your failures. It's a big, it's a big deal, right? It's a big part of what we do. 
We don't very often teach how God receives people who do that. This is the clearest example of how God moves with people in their side, their repentance stories, I think, in the whole Bible. The very first thing that it says is that while the sun was still a long way off. This idea, this Greek word of macron, it's the same root word that is sitting inside the macros, the child who ran a long ways away. It gives you this idea that the second that the son repented, the very second that his heart changed, that the very second the father saw him, the father is the one who closed the distance. The father is the one who, who in a very undignified way, by the way, I, I learned this in Jerusalem, that these people would have been fully robed, especially fathers, especially elegant elder statesmen. And for this father to see the son and him run means he has to hike up his robes, show his grandpa legs, and bust off to his adult son. It's unbelievable. It's so undignified. It's very Christ on a cross, is it not? It's very like, I'm coming for you. So you've got Macron and Macross. You've got this idea that God will close any distance. No matter how far away you are, God will close it and it will be even closer. Then he sees him. And what's the very first thing he does? He feels compassion and he runs and he embraces him and he kisses him. He doesn't stop 10 feet away and ask, tell me about your repentant heart. He doesn't know if this kid, like a lot of adult children, is going to show back up and just ask for more money. He has no idea. What he knows is there's his son that he hasn't seen that fell away. He is back, and I'm going to hug him and kiss him just as he is. It doesn't say he showered first. It doesn't say he still didn't smell a pig. It doesn't say he looked like he accomplished anything in his life. It says he showed up as he was, and before he could even open his mouth, his father is full-on sprinting towards him. And holds him just as he is. So I'm just going to break this over everybody in the room. Anybody who's told you that you don't get to be in relationship with Jesus, a church, or God until you shower up spiritually, make better choices, and amend all the mistakes you've made is just preaching bad Bible, bad theology, and you should just toss it away. It's not real. It's not true. It's not just me trying to motivate you. It's true. The Father embraces the Son where he is, as he is is but the son is truly repentant and so he confesses he pours forth he doesn't hide he doesn't see the father's love and genuine affection and then be like oh cool everything's cool right no what he does i know so many people who receive the repenting first love of god they sing and worship and then they change nothing else about their life then that's not true repentance this son is different He's truly brokenhearted, and he pours forth, I have sinned against you in heaven and all these things. He lobbies every single excuse why the father shouldn't be in relationship with him. And it's one of my favorite parts of the verse. The father doesn't even address it or recognize it. He doesn't even say thank you. He's like, huh. But the father said to his servants, after the son said, I am no longer worthy. He says, here's what I want you to do. Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. He says, may you look like me. May you spit inside my family and inside how I love. May you be dressed and made like you are supposed to be made. And may a sacrifice be made so that you know it. When you come to Christ, God, he makes you see you like he already sees you as valuable and worthy and important. And then he points out the sacrifice that was made in Jesus to lock that redemptive love into your heart, into your soul, 
so that you will never leave the same way again. It's unbelievable. It's powerful. It's drawing attention to this idea that even the biggest mistakes, God is willing to be in relationship with you. Now, you're supposed to, at this point, think that if you accept Christ, everything's going to go great in your life. How many people were told that one day? Yeah, especially us as, as youth kids. We go to camp, right, and someone, we come to Christ, and it's like, now everything's going to be great. It's not true. As a matter of fact, many times when you accept Christ, your world falls apart even more because the scaffolding that you've built has to be torn down and replaced by the actual foundation of a relationship with God. And you can't have both, by the way. Some of you, you've got both. You've got like half your life's a scaffolding. That's how you live when you're not here. That's the Friday nights we don't talk about. And then you've got the other half of your life all about Sunday morning. And that offended everybody in the room. <laughs> but here in this story, we get to see that that's often how it works. The younger son gets brought into a party. But there's still an older son, the one who stayed, the one who fathered, or followed all the father's commands, this is where the drama really begins. Chapter, uh, verse, chapter 15, verse 25. Now his older son was in the field, and he came and drew near to the house. Imagine it. Put it in your head. He heard music and dancing. By the way, he's probably in the field doing the chores his younger brother should have been doing in the first place. He's carrying around that bitterness. So he calls one of the servants and asks them, what does this mean? What's, what's going on? Why is there a party tonight? And he said to him, the servant did, your brother has come. And your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. And then it gives a description of the heart of the older brother, but he was angry and refused to go in. See, this is really important for those of us who uh, are uncomfortable with people who smell different with us in church or maybe even in life. People who've made different choices, maybe they live different lifestyles, maybe they voted for the wrong person. It's important for us to recognize that you are not earning the Father's love. And sometimes it's, 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 it's more important than even being a prodigal for you to realize that you've actually built a life out of performance, a life out of right choices, a life out of every Sunday morning, a life that has become no longer relationship with the Father, but religious, which means you're earning your way. This son observes the younger son receiving something he didn't earn. This is known, by the way, as unmerited favor which the Bible refers to as grace. Grace was being bestowed upon the younger son who didn't earn it, and the older brother, the one who was religious, who earned his relationship with his father, stands outside the community, outside the party, outside the communion, and refuses to go in. The viewpoint that we're walking through right now can be seen most easily as representing the self-righteous. Now, there's going to be a tendency, if you've already identified with the prodigal, there's going to be a tendency for you not to identify with the older brother. And I'm just here to tell you that would be the wrong way to read the story. Everybody in here has portions of their life that are prodigal. And everybody in here has portions of their life that are older brother. Because everyone that makes poor decisions oftentimes will keep making those poor decisions based on someone else in their life who makes poorer decisions. Well, I might get drunk and wasted every Friday night, but at least I'm not like that guy. This is a self-righteousness. This is people who consider themselves more deserving than others. And this can be seen both inside and outside the church. It's just a human thing. This 
And these are the people most bothered by folks receiving anything they didn't earn themselves, whether by ability, birthright, or any other fashion. And this, by the way, is an imaginary spiritual viewpoint. It's not real. It's also bad Bible, as we say. For those of you who are struggling to keep up with me right now, because you're like, ah, I feel like if I make good decisions, I do kind of earn a little bit of that, you know, relationship with the Father. I'm glad you feel that way. It's just not true. Romans 3.23, it's a gift for you. just want to give it to you, wrap it up, and shove it in your mouth. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Um, that all also includes you, ma'am. <laughs> I've had people accuse me of using one verse to, to slam home a point. So fair enough. Here's the second one. Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is, listen carefully, sir. And this is not your own doing that you are saved. It is the gift of God. Oh, and it's not a result of, what's that word? Works. So that no one may boast. Do you want me to, I got more verses, but I have other things to do. So just, <laughs> you didn't earn it. Although it may feel like that. I have areas in my life that I'm like, I'm doing pretty good here. I feel like I may be earning it. Those are the verses I go to to remind myself. Either way, self-righteous thinking always leads to the same thing, a break in relationship, the older brother outside the celebration or outside communion. It says, again, that he was angry and refused to go in. And then look what happens. His father came out and entreated him. Once again, the father hears of the older brother hears that he's outside community, hears that he is distant emotionally, and it is once again the father who closes the distance. Unbelievable. Who's this father? Oh, maybe God? Maybe representing the Lord? Could be. He closes the distance. He offers relationships and restoration. But here's the problem. Those who feel they deserve more than others, those who are self-righteous, will always demand more. And so the older brother lays out his, his uh, argument. And he answered his father, his entreatments. He says, look, these many years I have served you, and I never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a goat that I might celebrate with my friends. It's a profound brother argument, right? Like, I wanted snacks. She got the snacks. I want my snacks with my friends. And then he adds, because when you're arguing about a sibling, you always got to color it up a little bit. But when this son of yours, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. Okay, real quick. This is how we know the older son is unbelievably self-righteous at this moment. Do you recall when Jesus is telling the story and the younger son goes off, anything about prostitutes at all? Is there any mention of prostitutes in the earlier passage? It says he went to a faraway land and the verse says he squandered his property in reckless living. Where did the prostitutes come from? You just can't throw prostitutes out on people like that. you got to be responsible for that word. On Thursday, uh, I didn't know if I was going to get past this, but, but uh, Pastor Tom wasn't here, so I just decided to go for it. <laughs> on Thursday, uh, when this hit, the room got kind of quiet, and so I said, hey, let's just be honest, let's just take a quick vote, because Thursday services, right here at 6.30, they don't, we don't stream them, they're not live, right? So it's, it's a little, we just kind of throw it all at the wall and see what sticks. So I did this prostitute bit, right? And then I asked them, I'm like, hey, we're going to take a quick prostitute vote, should I keep prostitutes in on Sunday morning and live? 
Is that, should that be part of the sermon? And a bunch of people raised their hands. A bunch of older folks, too, were like, yes, you know what? It works. It works really well. And I go, great. So we are pro-prostitute. That's what I'm hearing. And they were like, whoa. <laughs> so I told that I decided not to do that for you, but just tell you what they did, because apparently that's the much more sinful service. This is the father's, this is the father's response to his son. He doesn't even address the, the shame the son was trying to sprinkle in by adding extra things into the story. He says to him, son, this is for those of us in the room who've done the right thing our whole lives, we feel like we earned it, we deserve it. He says, son, you are always with me and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad for this, your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. He is the coined and he is the sheep. And God has closed that distance. And now, without even realizing it, he comes to close the distance with the older brother as well. And I have always felt in my heart that that older brother's heart broke, that they sobbed, and that there was reunification, and that he went into that community understanding that what he did was right, but that it doesn't somehow earn more reputation and more relationship with God than somebody else who just found him five minutes ago. That's why our church has to stay as it is. It has to remain special here and online because so many people have filled it with people who do the work and give the money and show up and preach great sermons and sing great music. But there is no room for people who just found Jesus because they smell different and they don't deserve the Christ on the cross. Not quite yet. Maybe in three or four years once you've learned a little bit. That is not how it's supposed to be. But it takes us who are the self-righteous older brothers, that parts of our lives. It takes us being honest and authentic and asking and repenting in our own way so that God can bring us into the fold and make us have hearts and eyes and hands for people that are feeling more prodigal than older brother. I've shared this before, but the titles of your Bible, when, it, when, you, when you read the Bible, it has titles over different stories. Like this one's called The Prodigal Son. Uh, we believe Scripture is spirit-breathed. We believe that it is penned through people that God has used. But I don't know if you know this, the titles are not spirit-breathed. They're not all the same. They're, they're basically somebody somewhere reads a story, and it's like, oh, this story should be called the prodigal son. That's not a verse. It's just a title. I want to propose, just, just me, just being Danny, that actually this story is poorly named. It shouldn't be the story of the prodigal son. It should be called the story of the loving father. Because that's really what the story is about. It's about the father who gave when he shouldn't, who pursued when he shouldn't, who loved when he shouldn't, who continued to close the distance when he shouldn't have, who ministers both to the lost sheep, coin, daughter, son, and to the found that sit in the church and do the daily chores. He closes the distance and he brings both together and he is glorified for it. My wife and I were talking about this and she said, for her, and I wrote it down, I thought it was such a great quote. She says, it feels like people who have a relationship with God tend to wear their struggle instead of their shame. I think that's what this story is about. The shame of the prodigal that the father removed. It's not as if he suddenly got all his inheritance back. He was still going to struggle and pay consequences for his choice. But his acceptance and love and his more was met. It's the older brother trying to pour shame on another person who the father says, no, that's not your job. It is right for me as the father to receive and love the son. I don't know how many people in this room in an area of your life are carrying your shame when what you're supposed to be carrying is your struggle. I've been in full-time ministry for 23 years. And every once in a while, 
people will call me out on behavior or the church I used to be at or a situation I mishandled when I was 22 or 23. And at first, I used to get really articulately defensive. And I would feel like that was God's gift for me to hurt them. And I would be like, well, clearly, I'm just going to dismantle all your arguments. After I wakened, came to myself and realized that, that I have an older brother syndrome, that I have a prodigal space in my heart, I just started owning that stuff with people, carrying the struggle, being honest about how I've poorly led here or I made a mistake here. This is still the case here. I will never not carry the struggles I have, but by God, and I do mean by God, I refuse to harness and be harnessed by the shame. And we are supposed to be people who smell of struggle, not shame, whether we are older brothers or younger. I don't know if you knew this, but the prodigal, the idea of the prodigal means extravagant. That's actually kind of the idea. It's an old English word. It means extravagant, that he went off and he, he lived lavishly and he lived extravagantly. And that's sort of the core of where that word comes from. And I thought that was interesting, especially when you set it next to passages like in 1 John, see what great love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God. It's as if because of my own many lavish failures, God chose to heap upon my life his own never-ending lavish love. He will always close the distance. He is waiting for you to do the same. And it is up to you whether or not you are going to come into the celebration and communion with him. So here's what we're going to do in the room. At home, you can do it different. Uh, you can get, we're going to do communion here. Uh, also, I'm going to play a song. So if you're watching at home, you can let the song play. But we're going to do three different things that, that represent this coming to ourselves. This represent a reminder that we are supposed to be repentant. The first one is we're going to do our very best to stay in a space of worship. I'm going to have the worship team come out. Now, here's what I know. And we're going to teach on this more and more. Some of you in this room, worship is not your thing. You don't sing you don't engage. That's actually when you're on your phone or you're just pretending to just get through the next phase. I want you to risk, if the Holy Spirit's prompting you, to worship. Now, it doesn't mean you have to sing out or raise your hands. It just means you have to be present with the song, with what is happening inside you. Don't avoid it. Try to worship. So the first one is worship. The next one is prayer. If you need to sit in your chair or you need to stand, or you need to come to an area right over here where I have folks ready to pray with you, I want you to pour forth to God your confession, your story, your reluctance, your fear, your struggle, maybe even your shame. Spend time just talking to him inside yourself. Spend time proclaiming what you believe to be true or, or being honest about the lies you've accepted in your story. And the last one's communion. Communion is a sacrament. It's something God himself gave us to lock us into the story of Jesus, to allow us to remember his body that was broken, that's symbolized through bread, the torn bread, and his blood that was shed, symbolized through juice or red wine. Today it's juice. Some of you were really excited for a second. But it's a symbol. It's a symbol of the sacrifice made. It's an opening into and through that tabernacle doors into the celebration that God is having with you. Now, does that mean your life's gonna get miraculously better? No, it just means your life is no longer going to be existing to go and get a more you can never find. You can sit in your completeness and inside that completeness, there will be struggle, but also more than that lavish struggle, there will be lavish love lavish presence, lavish wholeness, 
lavish peace. And so we have communion set up all around the room because guess what? I'm not serving it to you. You want to come to the Father? You get up and come. There's tables right here. There's tables right here for the folks down on the floor. Up in the balcony, there's tables in each corner. If you're at home, go get whatever bread you can find and whatever juice you have. And when you're ready, during worship, I'm not going to lead it, you take that bread and remember the sacrifice. You take that cup and remember the blood. And you ask for God to reveal his lavish presence in your life. And then you struggle with the rest of us to be children of the one who accepted us and closed the distance even though he didn't have to. Heavenly Father, I pray as we sit in this space praying, worshiping, coming forth to receive communion, that, that God, it would, it, would, it would be authentic, that it would maybe feel truly like coming to the Father's presence, like singing and praying about and inside the Father's presence, that it just wouldn't be a new, another church service. It would be something bigger and higher and more that we would be covered in your lavish love, that we would be covered in your lavish forgiveness. That you would unbridle, Lord, this church, this community, every person watching online, you would unbridle them and allow them to feel you lifting the burdens, you healing, you welcoming, you causing them to return. And so, Lord, in a spirit of repentance and truth and confession and forgiveness, we just enter into this time with you. We lift it up and we set it down. In Jesus' name, amen. I've carried a burden too long on my own. created to bear it along I hear your invitation to let it all go I see it now I'm laying it down and I know that I need you run to the fall Fall into grace I'm done with the hiding No reason to wait My heart needs a surgeon My soul needs a friend So I run to the Father again And again and again and again Oh, oh saw my condition had a plan from the start your son for redemption the price for my heart and I don't have a context but that kind of love I don't understand, I can't comprehend, all I know is I need you. I run to the Father, I fall into grace, I'm done with
No reason to wait 
Father, we thank you, Lord, for what you've brought to our attention, for what you have released within us. We ask God right now that whatever we are carrying would be left and that you would be what brings peace and wholeness and more to our lives. We thank you, Lord, for loving you, for forgiving, for restoring, for renewing, and for pursuing people like us. We lift this time to you now in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen, guys. Thank you for coming. We'll see you next week.